Our topic is the elements of worship, our text, Psalm 67. Uh, we started this last week. Uh, we, we were doing a, a series on uh, what is worship, and this is part of that series, but we'll be dealing with the elements of worship. Last week we spoke a lot about prayer. We're going to finish up prayer. We're going to talk about the reading of the Word and then uh, the preaching of the Word uh, today. And uh, So listen carefully. Psalm 67, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that you, your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let the people praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. He shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. A very post-millennial passage, but dealing with worship primarily. So we're going to, I just have one last point on prayer, and then we're going to look at, at some of the elements of worship. These are things that we need to understand and know. Why is public worship done the way it is, and what are the meaning of these things, and why do we do that? Number four, and this is number four. And we just started this last week. <clears throat> Prayer should be made with a proper attitude in a correct biblical manner. And some of the things we need to keep in mind are as follows. A, and these are very obvious practical things. Prayer must be done with faith in God, Christ, and the sacred scriptures. For we can only believe in the promises of God if we, have, we trust in God and his word. Paul says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can only believe that our prayers will be answered if we rely on God and petition God according to his will revealed in Scripture. And later, look at well, James 1.6. If we pray in faith, we must pray according to what Scripture approves of. Christ talked about praying according to the will of God. Well, that's what that means. Praying for a godly wife or husband, for example. Praying for an increase of our personal holiness or sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Petitioning God for protection against the assaults of Satan and his minions, Matthew 6.13. And then we leave hand, matters in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. We pray according to the will of God and we leave it up to God. The idea of these name-it-and-claim-it preachers, your Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and these kind of preachers where you, they've taken Arminianism to its logical, heretical extent, where if you have true faith and you name it, you can claim it, and you can, literally, God has to answer your prayers. He doesn't have any choice. Um, the, uh, real faith twists God's arm and forces him to obey us is blasphemous nonsense. It has more in common with witchcraft and magic than the Bible. And let us remember Job's words from 1315. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. We trust God through good times and bad times. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes bad things happen. At the time they're happening, we may not understand, we may not like it. But later, years later, you'll look back and go, God did that, and it actually was to my benefit. 
<clears throat> B. We must approach the throne of grace with great humility. We understand that in and of ourselves we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment. But we have been justified, that is declared righteous in the heavenly court, by, by God, because of Christ, and saved solely to the merits of Jesus Christ. As Abraham said, Genesis 18, 27, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And note also David who prayed, Psalm 51, 1 and 3, Have mercy upon, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, for I acknowledge my transgressions. We are not only God's creatures, and thus we owe God everything, but we're sinful creatures, saved solely due to God's grace and mercy in Christ. So we have nothing, we, can, we cannot appeal to our pride, our works, our merit before God at all. And then C, although we pray as God's children, we've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, we still must approach God with a deep reverence, for he is infinitely holy, majestic, and righteous. We are to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, Hebrews 12.23. For our God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24, Hebrews 12.29. Reverence involves approaching the Lord solely as he is authorized in his word, it's, it's pride that says, I'm going to do it my way. Okay, we don't approach God like Frank Sinatra. As he is authorized in his word of the spirit of love, honor, and humility. Our hearts must be in harmony with our words. Modern evangelicals, and even uh, many of today's congregations, um, my wife and daughter visited a PCA church where they had uh, entertainment and applause during the public worship, tend to have a problem with reverence in public worship because they reject the regular principle of worship and have embraced an entertainment paradigm. <clears throat> Consequently, worship is directed to a degree by humanistic autonomy and worship is designed to please man. You go to these big mega churches. They have skits, they have, a, they have a band, they might have a rock band or a country band, or some even have a whole orchestra. It's all very entertaining, it's a big show, and people actually applause. Well, that's humanistic. That's not what the Bible teaches. What God thinks and says is placed on the back burner so human traditions that are loved can dominate. And this leads to a very, this all leads to a very casual public worship service. Some congregations have a coffee shop atmosphere, while others pattern themselves after show business. I was uh, in Los Angeles, I forget why I was there, and um, there was a big giant church there, and they actually had like five different, it was huge, they had five different, they had all these pastors, they had five different worship services. They had one for young people who liked rock and roll. They actually had worship, they, had a, they actually had a large coffee shop, and they conducted worship in the coffee shop while you were being served coffee and snacks. And that's humanism. 
Worship is designed to please God, and it's designed uh, according to what God has told us to do. It is not for us up to, to decide. Yeah, is it fun to have drink coffee and have donuts while you're watching the service? I'm sure it is. Is it fun to have really good rock bands performing? It's probably a lot of fun. Is it fun to have really good skits and comedian pastors cracking jokes? I'm sure it's a lot of fun. But that's not what worship is all about. We approach God solely as he is commanded in Scripture. The sense of awe and reverence through our coming into the presence of an absolutely holy and righteous, all-powerful being is set aside. And people approach God as if he was their peer or just another buddy. Casual worship. Such crass and irreverent behavior could be avoided if we keep in mind three things. One, we must remember that we can only approach God as he has prescribed. Human interests and inventions are fine when planning a dinner party, but they have no place in how we come together to worship God. Okay, if you're going to meet the Queen of England, or the, well, the King of England now, you don't wear cutoffs smoking a, a cigar with a dirty t-shirt on, saying, hey, how you doing, King? How, buddy? There's a protocol, and God, of course, is infinitely more holy than any king, especially the kings today. Two. We are gathering together to worship Yahweh, the creator of the universe. We are not going to a concert or a play or to the Friars Club. Now, I understand. Worship, a worship service is a gathering of people. And especially in a big church, it's a gathering of a lot of people. And people tend to look at it as kind of a social club. It's a place to have fun. But it's a place to obey God and approach him as he has commanded. It's not a place for humanism. And then three, we are guilty sinners saved by God's grace through Christ. The fact that we are permitted to worship God and come into a special presence is totally amazing. Think about it. We deserve to go to hell. We shouldn't even be alive right now. We should be right now burning in hell for what we've done in our lives. But God saved us through Christ, lifted us out of the mire, and saved us by the precious blood of Christ. And he allows us to come into a special presence through Christ. That's amazing. It could only be accomplished through the suffering and bloody death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have to take it seriously. We have to treat it with utmost reverence. D. We must pray to Yahweh with a solid understanding of who God is and what he has done on our behalf. So our prayers must be rooted in biblical theology and a, the Christian world and life view. The more we know scripture and theology and understand it, the more informed and biblical will be our prayers. And if you've ever listened to people who are not Christians, if you've ever listened to pagans pray, you can tell. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea why or who or what. It's sad. 
The point is this point is established by the prayers in the book of Psalms and Paul's prayers in his epistles. Deeply rooted in God's theology, deeply rooted in redemptive history, deeply rooted in covenantal what is defined as covenantal obedience. And then E. Our coming to the throne of grace should be connected to our love and appreciation of God, coupled with our thankfulness for what he has done on our behalf. Luke seven forty one to 42. Let us focus on what Christ has done for us and desire to commune with our covenant Lord in an intimate manner. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all of our care upon him, for he cares for you. First John 3, 1 John 3.1. Here's a couple passages to think about. You have to appreciate what God has done for you. You have to be thankful repeatedly for what God has done for you. And that, of course, is connected to our humility. First John 3.1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. That's amazing. Think about it. We were his enemies. We were in total rebellion. We deserved to go to hell. Now we're God's children. Not because of what we've done. We're still sinners. We still sin. We still have to pray every day. But because of what Christ has done. And here's another one. Romans 8.15 You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba! Father! And also when you get a chance, look at Galatians 4.6 F. Our prayers must be accompanied by a confession of sin together with a daily dying unto sin. <clears throat> and here is 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that? Why can John say that under divine inspiration? Because of what Christ has done. God is just and justifier of those who believe in Christ. Because Jesus paid the price and he imputed his righteousness to us. And here's a, uh, another passage that's tangentially related, James 5, 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he's going to go on to talk about Elijah. He prayed for it to stop raining. It stopped raining for three and a half years. He prayed for it to rain, and it rained so hard that everything was flooded. Don't expect God to answer your prayers when you're living in known sin and you haven't repented. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of simple. Here's a couple passages <clears throat> that are relatable. Proverbs 15, 8 and 29. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs 28, 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, 
is an abomination. So when those Democrats, for example, the Democratic politicians, get up there, well, this is true of some Republicans. Abraham Lincoln liked to quote scripture all the time. They get up there and they act all pious and they quote scripture and they'll say prayers and stuff. It's an abomination in God's sight because they haven't repented. They're still advocating abortion and sodomite rights and so-called gay marriage, etc., and transgender perversions. It's an abomination in God's sight. And then G. We must pray with fervency and perseverance. Our Lord commended a Canaanite woman and set her as an example to the apostles, for she prayed fervently and did not give up until Jesus answered her prayers, Matthew 15, 22 to 28. And you remember this example. She's not a Jew. And Jesus' disciples are all, get her out of here. She's annoying us. She keeps petitioning you to heal her, uh, I forget, her daughter. Tell her to get lost. She's not even a Jew. Get rid of her. And she kept at it, and she kept praying, and she kept praying. She didn't give up. <clears throat> now, fervency, of course, must not be confused with great displays of emotion. A lot of noise and tears does not prove one is fervent. <clears throat> the important thing is praying in earnest with a dedicated, serious attitude. Sometimes there are tears, sometimes there is not. Her faith in Christ and her, his power was great, Matthew 15, 28. Consequently, her prayers were strong, dedicated, focused, and continuous. And of course, Jesus answered her prayer and praised her for her faith. She said, Jesus said, look, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not even a Jew. The ministry wasn't to go to the Gentiles until after the death of Christ, so he was focusing on the Jews. And she said, look, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall under the master's table, which is a brilliant statement. <laughs> and then Paul says, we're to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, Gen uh, Ephesians 6.18. The thought always, literally in Greek, on every occasion, and the phrase without ceasing, which we find in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, refers to habitual prayer. Habitual prayer. You should pray throughout the whole day. You should pray when you get up. You should pray when you lie down. You should pray throughout the day. You should be meditating on Christ and what he's done for you and thanking God throughout the day and praising him, praying to him throughout the day. <clears throat> if you saw what hell looked like and you saw the people in hell, you might be more faithful about that. We must pray attentively, soberly, and intelligently renewing biblical petitions again and again with hope. Now, this command, it does not refer to vain repetitions, which Christ, of course, condemned in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 7. We're not to have vain repetitions like the pagans and the Romanists with their prayer beads, or the long, in, long, intricate prayers so men can show off. 
and I've seen this even in Reformed churches. Prayer should be short and simple to the point. These guys, they go on and on and on with all this flowery, intricate stuff. They're just showing off. Do they really pray like that in private? I doubt it. But fervent, sincere cries for help. Let us follow the example of Jacob who said, this is from Genesis 32, 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's it's an amazing thing. And Jacob was a pretty, he was a rascal. (laughs) He was was not uh, the best example of a believer, but he was certainly a believer. But I'm not going to let you go until you, until you bless me. So that's prayer. Those are just some principles I threw in at the end. Now let's turn our, uh, to another element of worship that's, we're getting to really critical foundational stuff. The reading and the hearing of the scriptures. And we're fo- basically following, generally following what's in the Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession describes another important part of public worship as, and this is 21.5, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear. Now, that the reading of the Bible in worship is a divine ordinance is easily established by examining public worship in God's Word. Did they read the scriptures during public worship? And the answer is absolutely. Moses was required to read the whole book of the covenant in the hearing of the people, Exodus 24, 7. Keep in mind, he's an unusual figure. He's both political leader and a religious leader. He did priestly functions. The priests were required to read the law, the Torah, before all Israel in their hearing, Deuteronomy 31.11. Men, women, and children, even little ones, are to carefully listen to the law, quote, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of the law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 31, 11 to 13. Now, what's interesting about that passage, uh, there's a practice in many evangelical and even quite a few Reformed churches where the service, the public worship begins and they take all the toddlers and little kids out of the church for children's church. And that's totally unbiblical. The reading of the scriptures and public worship in the Old Testament included babies and toddlers. Now, obviously, if a baby's screaming and crying because he's got diarrhea or something, you take him out of the, out of the back uh, so he doesn't disturb the service. But your little ones are there. Ezra the priest read the book of the law of Moses before the assembly of men, women, and, and, and this is from uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 to 3, and all who could hear with understanding in the open square. Very, very young children can hear with understanding. Very young. Our Lord read from the book of Isaiah on this, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Luke 4.16 He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was his custom. In other words, he had been doing this over and over. And he stood up to read. Yeah, the practice of the synagogues was you always stood to read the scriptures out of respect because this is God speaking. Then what, what they would do, now we, we continue to stand up when we preach today, but in that time you'd, you'd read the scriptures and sit down and then exposit the scriptures. Now one of the first church, church synods, James said this, 
Acts 15.21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And Paul also said, he concurred, saying that the prophets are read every Sabbath in Acts 13.27. In addition, his own inspired epistles, which are compared, uh, I forgot to write the passage down, but Peter equates Paul's epistles with the Old Testament scriptures. His inspired epistles were regularly read before whole congregations for their edification, Colossians 4.16. And this reading of the scriptures was not voluntary. It's commanded by God. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 4.27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. It's not voluntary to read the scriptures in public worship. It's commanded by God in both testaments. And then in Revelation 1.3, we are promised. Blessed is he who reads and hears, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. And James agrees from 1.22, he says, saying we must be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving ourselves. Now, keep in mind how important the hearing of the word was before the invention of the printing press in about 1490. I think it was 1480-something, uh, right before the Reformation in God's providence. Books were super expensive. People could not afford to buy, you know, people could not afford to buy a Bible. And through the Middle Ages, they would usually have a pulpit by, well, not the Middle Ages, the Reformation. The Roman Catholics kept the Bible from the people. But in the Reformation, they would have a large Bible. The church would purchase a beautiful Bible, and it would be chained to the pulpit. So it would not be stolen. It could be accessed. Now, given the clear and abundant testimony of Scripture, we should not be surprised by the instructions of the original Presbyterian Directory for Public Worship, 1645, regarding the public reading of the scriptures. And I'll tell you right now, the church abandoned this, the, 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 the Presbyterian church in the, in the USA abandoned this back in 17, uh, eight, yeah, 1788, because they rejected exclusive psalmody. And a uh, huge mistake. The Directory for Public Worship of, the, of 1645 is way superior to what the OPC has and the PCA and the Dutch Reformed Churches, it's, it's superior. Here's what it says. Regarding the public reading of the scriptures, quote, <clears throat> reading of the word of, in the congregation being part of the public worship service of God, wherein we acknowledge our dependence upon him and subjection to him, and one means in is one means of being sanctified by him, for the edifying of his people is to be performed by pastors and teachers, albeit such as intend the ministry may occasionally both read the word and exercise their gift in preaching in the congregation if allowed by the press be therein too. He's talking about the allowance of people who are licensed to preach. They're not yet ordained, uh, but they've been licensed to preach and they're allowed to read the scriptures and preach uh, so they can get experience and so people can see if they're gifted or not with the assumption that they will be ministers. 
all the canonical books of the Old and New Testament, 66 books, but none of those which are commonly called Apocrypha, that's in the Roman Catholic Bible, shall be publicly read in the uh, shall be publicly read in the vulgar tongue. That means in a translation of a people, the vernacular, out of the best translation, distinctly, that all may hear and understand. How large a portion shall be read at once is left to the wisdom of the minister, but it is convenient that ordinarily one chapter of each testament be read at every meeting, and sometimes more where the chapters be short, or the coherence of the matter requireth. In other words, uh, you've got a couple short chapters, and a, cha- a thought is be- begun in this chapter, and the next chapter concludes that thought, or has the application of that thought. You want to read both chapters. That's just simple wisdom. It is requisite that all canonical books be read over in order, that the people may be better acquainted with the whole body of the Scriptures, and ordinarily where the reading in either testament endeth on the Lord's day, it is to begin the next. End of quote. And that's excellent. And that's basically what we do here. Basically. You know, obviously if a chapter is super long, we'll divide it in half. But generally we try to do a whole chapter each week of each testament. The wisdom and biblical nature of this directory is seen by the following items. First, the reading of the scriptures and the careful hearing of it shows our dependence and subjection to God. We listen carefully to the word because we believe it is inspired, that is breathed out by God, and is the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. Why do we listen to the Bible every week? Because it's inspired. It's God speaking to us in propositional form. You want to know what God says? You want to know what God has to say? You want to know what God's will for your life is? You got to go to the Bible. You got to go to the word of God. All these dumb books by people, these gimmicky books, how to know the will of God. You know, listening to the still small voice and all this stuff. No, read your Bible. Study the Bible if you want to know what God's will is. It therefore is our sole standard for faith and life or doctrine and practice. Everything we need to know about God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, salvation, doctrine, ethics, sanctification, worship, church government, etc., is found within the Bible. We don't need church tradition. We don't need further revelations of the Spirit, the supposed Charismatics and Pentecostals. We don't need new revelations from cult leaders. We have everything we need in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. The only way that we can grow spiritually and be sanctified is to learn it and have it applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John 17, 17, his high priestly prayer, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. How are we sanctified? Does the Holy Spirit simply mystically zap us and all of a sudden we're better? No, the Holy Spirit works through the Word. And He applies the Word to our hearts. So you look at your behavior, you examine it in light of the Word, and you go, wow, my behavior is not in accordance with God's law. I need to repent. And then you're convicted, and then you die daily. You repent daily. 1 Peter 2.2, 2. as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. <clears throat> if one adds false supposed revelations to it, the Apocrypha, the phony prophecies of the Pentecostals and Charismatics, and cult leaders, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Charles Taze Russell, Brigham Young, or human traditions, as does the Papal Church, 
he will be cursed by God. The papal church uh, tries to justify their human additions, their human traditions, by saying, and, and the Jews teach the same thing because they have human traditions also. The Jews say, well, well, you know, when Moses was up on the mount, he received a great body of unwritten traditions, of unwritten doctrines. And these are brought forth in history through our traditions. The Roman Catholic Church says that the apostles received a whole body of unwritten traditions, which have been handed down through time. So, and, and, and the, the obvious answer to that is, A, it's, of course it's not taught in Scripture at all, and B, why in the world would you wait over 600 years to tell us about purgatory if that was taught to the apostles? Why would you wait until the 1850s to tell us about the Immaculate Conception of Mary if that was really true? Why, you know, you can look at church history and you can see every, you know, almost the very year that these new doctrines were introduced, transubstantiation, didn't become widespread until the ninth century. It's just an excuse for human traditions. It's a lie of the devil. Sola Scriptura, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is to be our standard for faith and life. Revelation 22, 18 to 19, which of course applies to the book of Revelation, but it's applied by many commentaries of the whole Bible. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these words, to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And then here's the larger catechism, which is just absolutely wonderful. Quote, The holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that only he can enable us to understand them, with a desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Answer to question 157. A high and reverent esteem of them comports perfectly with the confessions with godly fear. You know, when people now think about this for a minute. If you were stand, if you were sitting there and Jesus Christ Himself or God was speaking to you directly, would you daydream and think about your shopping trip on Wednesday? or your, your garden, would you daydream? Would you ignore what is being said? Would you, would you let your mind water, or would you pay attention? We have to treat the reading of the scriptures very, very seriously. It is God speaking to us. The scriptures are sacred. They come from Yahweh himself. Therefore, they must be treated with the honor, seriousness, and reverence that they deserve. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and true knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7, Psalm 111, 10. If we really believe they are the word of God, we will pray to understand them, we will meditate on them, and we will diligently apply them to our lives. And think about it. Think about it. Whenever Satan seeks to destroy a, conf uh, a confessing people, he always begins by sowing doubt as to the veracity of God's word. 
Genesis 1 to 5. Satan goes to Eve, well, has God really said that? Come on. He didn't say that, did he? And then later he says, God didn't say that. That's not true. Do what you want. You can be your own God. Go out on your own path. Make up your own ethics. You can be God. God's just trying to deny you a blessing. And then today, when, when uh, homosexual behavior is discussed, oh, well, that's just part of the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to today. You couldn't even eat pork back then. They make, these idiots make no distinction between ceremonial laws that have been abrogated and moral natural laws that are binding. They sow doubt. It doesn't apply to me. And then they follow Satan. So we have to follow the word of God carefully. And then I'll look at one more point and we'll take a little break. Second, and this is very obvious, the reading of the scriptures must involve the whole scriptures. Now I'm following the directory for worship. We're not to neglect any part of the scriptures, even chronologies, even what you may consider to be esoteric ceremonial laws. The whole Bible is critical. The best way for this to occur faithfully is to systematically read through the whole Bible chapter by chapter. And that's what we do. Now, given the importance of the New Testament and the fact that both Testaments are necessary to understand each other, a chapter out of both Testaments should be read each week. Here's an example. We read all about the death of Christ, that he shed his blood for us. We read about his death. It's a propitiation. It's an expiation. It brings us redemption. Well, all these terms are defined clearly and explicitly in the Old Testament sacrificial system. The whole point of the sacrificial system uh, was to teach us about the death of Christ. And if you want to learn about Christ's atoning death, you have to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And if you don't, you're not going to fully understand what Christ did. Both Testaments are absolutely necessary. You need the new to explain the old, because a lot of it's shadowy. And you need the old to understand the new. You need both. Since the amount of what is read each week is essentially circumstantial, Ministers and sessions using biblical wisdom can choose to read more than one chapter if they are short or if the conclusion of a thought is in the next chapter. They can also read less than a chapter if the chapter is exceptionally long. There are chapters that have like 78 verses. In our day, when the focus of public worship is often on entertainment and gimmicks, it is important that we give the ministry of the Word of God a preeminent place in our meetings. We must not alter the biblical pattern due to modern man's short attention spans or a love of entertainment. Sermons today tend to be very short and they tend to be what you would think 50 years ago was designed for a fifth grader. And that's, that's really kind of sad. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back. We've got to finish up the reading of the Word. We're almost done with the reading of the Word, and then I have a whole big section on the preaching of the Word, 
and you're going to learn why preaching is so important and what it entails. Why, why is it required? Why is it necessary? Why is it so important? What should it be? What should it consist of? How do we define preaching, biblical preaching? So we'll look at that in a moment, but uh, we'll stop here and take a little break, and we'll come back. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us these elements of worship. We need them. They're for our benefit, our sanctification. We come into your special presence every Sabbath in public worship to help us to appreciate these wonderful elements of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. 